You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, a conversation between audience member and artist designed to demystify the classical music and opera experience. If you enjoy the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, and really, who wouldn't, please consider supporting it for as little as $2 a month. Visit patreon.com forward slash thoroughly good to pledge your support. From desperate circumstances brought on by an invisible virus that threatens health and the global economy comes invention and creativity and maybe even hope. The work of a collection of people. Something special and something heartfelt. In these troubled, unsettling times where we're getting accustomed to what an isolated life with freedoms curtailed is and its cost, one thing has suddenly become clear to me. Our need for connection, however we can get it, has become ever more important, ever more pressing and perhaps even ever more urgent. And just because the concert halls are closed and contact with individuals restricted or even stopped, that doesn't mean the conversation has to stop. It just needs to be recorded in a slightly different way. So, thanks to a handful of thoroughly good listeners, here's the beginnings of a new idea for the podcast. A conversation about the music we love, the music we need, and the music we offer to one another. And to begin with, what the experience we're beginning to live through is like. A sort of exchange of CDs with explanations and descriptions in between. And who better to kick things off than the person who featured on the first thoroughly good classical music podcast, Fran Wilson. This is a key moment, actually, because uh, this is the first time ever that a thoroughly good podcastee has appeared twice uh, in the series. Actually, it's three times. Is it really? Have you appeared? Yeah. Oh, hang on. Have I forgotten that you've appeared another time? Well, there was the first one we did with Thomas Hewitt Jones, and then the one with Adam Gatehouse about the League oh. of competition. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. That, so, that one. Yeah. Okay. I'm number three. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> Um, tell me where you are, because you've moved now, haven't you? Yes, I left the great metropolis, and I have to say, in current circumstances, I'm jolly glad I did. Um, so I live on an island called Portland on the Dorset coast, um, part of the Jurassic Coast, a World Heritage Site. And it's joined to the mainland by a thin causeway, which is formed by Chesil Beach. So oh. we literally go on Chesil Beach when we want to have a walk. Oh, <laughs> right now that just sounds just just hearing Chesil Beach sounds yeah. sounds lovely. You said that it's it feels better to be to be there now than in London. Mm. What do you? How do you? Can you ex- explain that a bit more? Because obviously I'm in London, and so so I everything obviously from from my perspective revolves around London. I know that's annoying, but what is that? What is the experience? being in this really weird moment like being there well in a way we've had 18 months to get used to being isolated because in fact down here we are quite isolated in that there aren't many people around and we don't see many people and we haven't made many new friends which is fine because I 
stay in touch with my London friends, as you know well. Um, and actually, we quite like this sort of sequestered life because it enables both of us to kind of quietly get on with our work. And, and we enjoy the open space and the seaside and the beach and the fresh air. So it, it's turned into actually something rather special. And now I feel that we're kind of out of the main thrust of what's happening. Um, I, I'm not being complacent. Uh, there are cases of the dread virus in Dorset, but I just feel we're, we're somewhat out of it. And that just gives me a tiny bit of reassurance at the moment. Just is a tiny the, bit. Is it the... Um... This the the stuff that I've sort of been mulling around in my head over the past few days, and it really kicked in for me last Thursday when I started getting emails from people about events that were, you know, because we we receive similar sorts of emails, Fran, uh, about events, and you start getting a trickle of things coming through, uh, and then it becomes quite real, and then it ramped up over the weekend, but mm. but I think uh, what has really struck me is. I'm not so much bothered about the health implications so much as the the economy. Um, and I'm wondering whether, and I don't mean the obviously the broad economy, the the big economy. That's that's very serious. But the the world in which we frequent, um, it's more the economy that that sort of bothers me. And I'm wondering whether that's the same for you. Oh, very much so. And I know from conversations with musician friends and and acquaintances and others who work in our profession kind of in on the periphery in, in a sense or in the kind of attendant um, professions such as me doing PR work yeah it's it's very very serious and and it's also reflected in the hospitality industry where my son works you know the, they're both industries which are very uncertain in times like it's very very fragile yeah I hadn't really appreciated the fragility of it I mean mm. I, I had become more and more aware of of the sector let, let's just you know call it the the classical music sector if you like because because i i felt more more at home in it over the past couple of years making the podcast yes. and writing stuff so i felt more a part of it uh so so i understood it i didn't really appreciate to what extent i took it for granted until oh the I, I agree as well yeah and um it's really only in the last few days and weeks where it's evident how hard this is going to knock our friends and colleagues in the industry that I've really woken up to it. And um, it makes you realise that it's really only the people at the very top of the tree who are on the big salaries who are probably going to be able to ride this storm reasonably comfortably. And that that's terrible. I think it, it, it's so sad. It's Yeah, I, I really, it's very hard to express how upset I am by that, actually. Is there fear in it as well? I mean, I'm I'm fishing in order for reassurance, I suppose, because I certainly experience elements of fear, and I, you know, and I don't consider myself a musician, but uh, obviously, but uh, I wonder whether there is an element of fear as well. I think it probably is a common experience, and I think that you know, it it comes from the uncertainty. I mean, the musician's life is uncertain anyway, when so many of of these people are um, working kind of hand to mouth almost. Um, freelance, peripatetic. Uh, many of the performers I know supplement their performing fees by teaching, which is, you know, regular and more certain work. But now that's also, you know, being threatened. They can't do one-to-one teaching. They can't teach in schools and the conservatoire. So 
I know that many of them are finding solutions, like, for example, teaching by Skype or teaching remotely. But even so, it's it's very, very fragile, very uncertain. Uh, is that a temporary solution, do you think, or, or does it offer a, a does it offer a real alternative? I think it actually does offer a real alternative. And I, uh, looking at what people have been posting online over the last 24 hours about how they're adapting their teaching, I, I actually think that a lot of people will do this, teach by Skype, for example, and realise that it is possible. And actually, in this respect, it creates an opportunity. Um, and therefore, they can add that skill to their portfolio of skills in, in the future. So in that respect, it it. it it's a positive and I'm determined that we should see positives in a situation like this. I think you have to, otherwise you would just go mad. Mm. Uh, I've, I've also been really surprised by the sort of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm driven by the emotional reaction and my emotional reaction to things that, that crop up on social media. Uh, and certainly in the, when things sort of really kicked off, if you like over the weekend, uh, seeing, uh, the Berlin Philharmonie uh, or the Digital Content Concert Hall uh, offering uh, free access for a month to mm. to their whole archive of stuff. Uh, mm. I, I recall having a, a slight sort of internal emotional reaction to that, as though there was a sense of we're all coalescing around this thing that we care a lot about. Yes, I think there is a strong sense of that, and I, I think that people posting about the concert halls that are closing. You know, my beloved Wigmore Hall. Um, it, it it feels very, oh, I don't know what even the word is, momentous and not in a good way. Um, but the fact that we can access the thing we love through these other channels, again, is, is a positive and it keeps us in contact with that thing that we love and that, and that we want to engage with. And for that reason, I think it's very important that we do engage with it and we do make the most of these opportunities. Uh, I'm uh, hearing you talk about a concert hall closing makes me think of uh, those moments where I've I sort of caught myself daydreaming. I mean, it, it, it feels it's only been a few days. It feels like it's been weeks already. Uh, I know. And I'm, not, I'm not entirely sure I can bear thirty days, uh, but you know, at least I have some some income, and uh, <laughs> I should I should be grateful because uh, others are far worse off. But. Mm. Um, there have been moments when I've thought, yes, you know, concerts halls have closed. I cannot wait for the day when they're open, uh, mm. and the, and the sense of elation that there will be. Uh, yeah, I didn't likewise. Really, I didn't really expect to have an emotional reaction to the perception of my freedoms being curtailed. Because in comparison mm. to you, I don't go to very many concerts really because I don't have very much time. Uh, <laughs> so it's not like I consider myself a regular or habitual concert goer. Um, uh, tell me about, you've brought, some, you've brought some things that you wanted to share, some tracks that you wanted to share. Um, and I, uh, what I'm interested in hearing is... Um, how music has supported you over the past couple of days because I've struggled to find music that I can listen to without getting mm. quite teary. Um, well, I've been the same, and I know that my tearfulness is, is also partly driven by the fact that I'm tired and I always become more emotional and prone to tears when I'm very tired. I've been worrying, obviously, about what's happening and worrying about my son who's in London. Um, but I started out 
the beginning of the week listening to Jonathan Biss's complete Beethoven sonatas, of course, on the tale of us going to that fantastic concert at yeah. beloved Wigmore Hall just a handful of weeks ago. And I have to say that the recording is as, almost as thrilling as his live performance. Uh, it's absolutely wonderful Beethoven playing. And there's something about Beethoven's humanity. And this is a cliche and I apologize, <laughs> but it's true. Beethoven spans all the emotions and he's, he's so kind of real and human. And that I found actually very comforting. I've been in tears listening to it as well, partly because it's just so beautiful, some of the playing, but it, it also has provided a degree of comfort and a distraction, which for me is very important. I find that I need my mind to be distracted away from, from, from focusing and worrying on the thing. Um, so to, to actually just immerse myself in in nine volumes of Beethoven sonatas has been wonderful, <laughs> and I haven't got to the end of it yet. <laughs> you're binging. That's what you're yes, doing. You're I binging. Am. I'm binging on Beethoven. <laughs> um, is is Biss's album... Um... Uh, as I mean, my memory of that concert was I was completely blown away. As I, as mm. we, I think we both were. Um, yeah, we were. That by uh, the the almost craziness or the madness, um, uh, the the lightning speeds and the sort mm. of uh, almost it, this is a as a, a cliche certainly, but the the roller coaster speeds. Mm. Uh, that, that just pinned me to the wall. Uh, are yeah. the uh, is that is it a similar experience on the? Apple? I think so. Although it's a little bit more reined in because it's a recording and obviously there's been editing. But but he does capture that same kind of febrile intensity in the fast movements and then these most beautiful, heart rending slow movements. You know how how anyone can say that Beethoven didn't write beautiful, memorable music. And I did sit next to someone at a dinner party once who actually said that. Um, <laughs> it's, it's just oh, to be a fly on all then. <laughs> it's a very very fine recording, and uh, I think it's a very important contribution to the the catalogue of Beethoven sonatas. I really do. I have made more of an effort, if you like, to, uh, or I've I've approached Beethoven with a bit more curiosity this year, mm. inevitably because of the the um, the two fifty celebrations. Although that in itself seems like it was three or four years ago, uh, and it hasn't yeah, really got true. started yet. Um, that 
the thing that has really struck me, and I was reminded um, listening to the the movement that you shared from number 21 is Beethoven is is so complicated as in Mm. I don't mean he's complicated but as a there is so much detail in it there is complexity complexity is a better word Uh, and I had never really I'd only really listened to the Beethoven symphonies Uh, Mm. I hadn't even heard the Emperor concerto really until a few years ago and I have been consistently blown away by the detail yeah. What is it like to play? Say that again, John. What is it like to play? I've never attempted that particular sonata. A friend of mine has. Um, it's What I love about playing his piano music is that he gives you, as you say, it's very detailed. So he gives you lots and lots of information. And he's very, very precise. And things like articulation uh, take the first movement of the Tempest sonata um, which has got all these drop slurs, and they have to be articulated exactly as he writes them because they create a specific effect. But I also think, and and I believe that pianists like Jonathan Biss and also Igor Levitt demonstrate this so well that Beethoven can kind of take anything that you throw at him, which is what I said in the pub the other week, that, that he is his music is open to interpretation and quite loose interpretation. Um, and I think that that's... A r- real mark of its greatness. Doesn't that, if it's if it's open to loose interpretation, that presumably means that it attracts quite a lot of strong views. Oh, definitely, yeah, and a lot of gatekeeping surrounding it. <laughs> right. A little bit like Bach, you know, <laughs> the reverence, the composer worship is very strong, and it gets in the way. Um, and it's it's an aspect of of classical music. Um, and classical music criticism and performance as it interests me a lot at the moment. Um, uh, and I'm very interested in performers like Jonathan Biss who are prepared to s- sort of take the music somewhere else and, and to be freer with it, to liberate it from all the preconceived notions of a, a right or wrong way to play it. It's very refreshing. actually the movement that you shared the third movement Uh, and I did recognize it I had heard it before I just forgotten about it and I think that um, clearly we approach um, the listening experience in a slightly different way I had I made the error perhaps uh, the schoolboy error of listening to Schoenbos for Claire de Nacht on Sunday (laughs) and I mean you know it has a happy ending obviously Mm. uh, and it is an exquisite ending but um I'm not ready for that yet, and and I'm, no. I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated by how events like these that really challenge our uh, our thinking mm. uh, can can make some music off limits. Uh, I find that fascinating, and yet at the same time, it's, it can also be the case that some music can help me access stuff that I didn't think I needed to access. Do, do you see what I mean? 
I do, absolutely. I, I think it's almost a form of therapy. And and I totally get what you say about certain pieces being off limits. So, you know, I I don't think I could listen to the quartet for the end of time, which is a piece I adore. And I, again, it sounds a little bit cliche to say that. Uh, it's just not appropriate at the moment. And uh, and in fact, that final movement of the Waldstein with those amazing fanfares and the way it grows out of this very quietly spoken opening, it it, it is very uplifting. It's life affirming. Um, it just felt good to listen to it the other day. And I have to admit, I also sing along to it because I love that met that theme in it. So I walked around the kitchen singing to it and that made me feel better. <laughs> That's nice. Uh, I'm not going to do that. I um, So I want to mention the thing that did bring me joy, um, which was some light music. People are quite sniffy about British light music, I think. Um, and I can't remember what it's called now, which is why I'm tapping at the keyboard. Um, it was called Vanity Fair. Uh, I adore it. I adore the melody. I adore the simplicity of the melody and the balance and the um, uh, the neatness of it. It's like a well laid out piece of print. Yeah. And and <clears throat> I have I have returned to British light music. There's a there's an album on Warner Classics of uh, various tunes that were written. My assumption is during the second world war when factory workers were um were played music on the radio uh, in order mm. to uh, keep their spirits up i think that's what the story is um and uh i get it i get it because actually it sort of creates it creates another world that is isn't real um mm. that is perfectly safe and mm. an escape and um and that is some skill to be able to conjure up as a composer. Um, I had completely forgotten about them and then just stumbled on them yesterday. I adore it. I, I, I certainly agree about this sort of escapism thing. And, and I know that some people would say we, we absolutely need to stay in the moment at the moment and all that nonsense. But uh, we, we, you do need somewhere to go to like that. Um, funnily enough, I played some Eric Coates the other week at, when I gave a little concert at an old elderly person's care home, and they just loved it. There's something about that music. It, 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 as you say, it does hop back to another time, and it, it's very comforting. Um, I feel that English um, light music is rather um, unfairly dismissed as you know not good enough, and actually it is wonderful stuff it really it's is it's music written to order it strikes me as music written to order and music written very well to order because mm. it is rooted in melody and we are quite yes. sniffy about melody um yeah, uh, yeah. and i think the here's here's a strong view i suspect the western classical music tradition uh, demands development and so if if a melody doesn't develop then it is somehow looked down upon um and uh, I think it's a bit of a shame, but every now and again, hearing it is just terribly, terribly reassuring, and and it mm. probably filled in a gap for me. Um, 
you have you are learning pieces. I mean, you have already put together projects, learning projects whilst you're whilst you're in confinement. Uh, you're learning some pieces. What are they, please? I've decided to attempt a piece by a living British composer called Francis Pott, who I'm connected with on Facebook and who did my Meet the Artists interview some years ago. And I actually just found the piece by chance because an album of his piano music was reviewed in one of the magazines recently. And I thought, oh, I'll look it up because I, I like, I actually like contemporary piano music, quite a lot of it. And this piece just struck me as being rather beautiful. Going back to the thing about gatekeepers, I try and steer clear of mainstream repertoire now because there are too many people out there telling you how to do it and how it should be played. Um, and I prefer not to be ruled by the shoulds and to go off and do my own thing and to pick more left field repertoire. Um, so that that's kind of the reason why I picked that up. And also, it's just very pretty. It's got sort of Debussyan harmonies um, and some rather nice piquant, crunchy chords and just appealed to me that's why i've decided to learn it there's a word that is not used enough pecan that's yeah lovely. well it, it's a good word <laughs> <laughs> uh, is it difficult to learn i haven't listened to it either which is a rather joyous thing actually just to hear somebody that is something that is absolutely emerged from the from recording the podcast that if you hear someone describe something there is an energy in their voice even if you don't know the work or the piece of art or the music, mm. um, then if there's an energy in their voice because they're speaking with passion, then you're going to go and want to listen to it. So uh, is it difficult to play? Um, tricky, um, but not impossible. I've, I've sight read through it, which is my normal approach to start with. I've listened to it. Um, I haven't really spent enough time going through it in detail. I'm, I'm still very unsettled at the moment. I think in another few days, and a few decent nights sleep, um, I'll settle to do it, start work on it more seriously. But um, it, the willingness and the intent is there anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and you have also provided some more Beethoven, another Jonathan Biss, number 31. Tell me about that, because I don't think that I can recall it. Oh, oh opus, um, oh, sorry, I've... Number 31. Yeah. Sonata number 31. So it's Beethoven's penultimate piano sonata. And when I was writing about it the other day, I wondered if I have a thing for penultimate piano sonatas <laughs> because I also adore Schubert's penultimate piano sonata, which I spent three years learning in great detail for a diploma. Um, anyway, the Opus 110 is my absolute favourite piano sonata of any sonata of Beethoven or indeed anybody else. Wow, um, wow, listen to you. I just find it so kind of, again, beautiful. It's got that lovely hymn-like opening, which is the movement I sent to you. Um, a rather rollicking second movement, which is based on two German folk songs. And then this arioso, which is a kind of dying back and then a coming to life um, with a fantastic fugue, which I think is one of the most sort of stable of musical devices. You feel 
it's so life-affirming. Again, that's that word about with Beethoven. You know, this was written at the end, not the end of his life, but the end of his life composing for the piano, really. There was only a set of bagatelles after the the, the piano sonatas. Um, and he's writing this transcendent music, and he was almost completely deaf. And that is so wonderful that he was able to do that. It's and a, it's he doesn't, a... at the end, sort of fall into a, a slough of despond and um, resignation. You just, you get this, again, a fanfare of music saying, I'm still here and I'm still doing it. And, <laughs> and that, that's, I think yeah. that's one of the many things I love about it. Uh, there's, there's I haven't a... been able to learn it. I have it on such a high pedestal. I love it so much. I cannot settle to learn it. And I'd love to be able to play it, but I've decided that I'm not going to. I'm just going to enjoy listening to other people playing it. Is there is there is there that danger of you know never meet your heroes? Uh, yeah. To, that if you it get to know it, you can't re- you can't really that. play it in the way that you hear it. That no. that something might die. Uh, there, there's there's <laughs> an, well, exactly, well maybe exactly not. why I think I think <laughs> right. you absolutely put your finger on it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think that I think the analogy is perhaps a little unhelpful given the time. Um, <laughs> In uh, current circumstances, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I could be a little bit more sensitive. Um, the the thing that really strikes me about these things, uh, and actually in talking about it, is that by picking out things in a in the way that we have this afternoon, um, actually we're sharing through uh, a musical description the things that we kind of need back from music right at this moment in time. I find that quite interesting. I'm not wanting to massage yeah. my own ego, but that's kind of what, what's happening here. And the thing that the thing that strikes me from what you're saying is that there's there's a need for something to be life-affirming. One is searching for um, that, that sort of magic ingredient that will just mm. give us a bit of an uplift. Yeah, I think we well, I think we need it. And again, it's a bit of a cliche, but we do. We need things that provide comfort and provide entertainment. And I mean that in the best possible use to the word. Um, and and just like I said earlier, things that distract because you know the churn of news at the moment. I don't need to tell you this. Is, uh, it's is terrifying, just awful, yeah. and often very very frightening and and confusing. And it's I, I'm trying to actively ignore it as far as possible at the moment because it's just too upsetting it is it uh, it's interesting that it is um obviously that people are being provided with important information by media organizations and it's done with the best intentions there are mm. some which are I, 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 salacious is not the right word, but sensationalist. That's that's the yes. that's the word. The the way in which it's presented feels quite sensationalist, and it and it doesn't. You know, I mean, I was completely hooked into to Brexit coverage on mm. the basis that there may possibly be some hope at the end of it. Um, but this is this feels quite destructive and and just promotes a a sense of catastrophic thinking all of the time. Doesn't really help me. Um, I, I absolutely agree. My uh, husband highlighted this as well today and said it's catastrophizing on a grand scale and it, it isn't helpful. It's it's almost a form of pornography, if I may use that word. It seems to me that the, the media feeds on this. Yes. Um, and it's not helping. I don't think it's helping us at all. We need to be given a clear message, not this catastrophizing. 
Anyway. Um, I have one other thing to, to sort of tempt you with at the end of our sort of virtual concert. That's basically mm. what we've done here. I'm I'm going to I'm going to give you your, your six impromptus. Um Oh yeah. Impromptu number five as an encore. You can have that as an encore because it's that pianist whose name I can't pronounce who is adorable. Lee Fuveran's nurse. He yeah. is adorable. Newsflash. He is, is adorable. adorable. I've met him. He's uh, okay. okay. He's a fantastic pianist. <laughs> name dropper. Um, I'm and, sorry. Uh, Boy, no, 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 there goes fine. the name. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> um, and I'm also going to give you the meditation on Haydn's name as an encore as well. Um, uh, but I'm going to suggest that the main part of the program is concluded by my choice, <laughs> uh, okay, which is uh, which is Green Bushes, uh, which mm. I first heard at the Proms a few years ago, maybe seven or eight years ago. I absolutely adore it, and I think mm. I know why I respond to it now. based on i mean it's based on a folk song um mm. green bushes a traditional folk song and and it has that folk songy feel to the melody the two you know british light music the vanity fair and green bushes they're both linked by strong distinctive melody that is yes. meant to engage and include and 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 it does stir the heart it stirs mm. the heart for me it makes me think of Makes me think of Sunday afternoons and blackberry bushes and and, yes, and cream crumble teas and, and cream teas and warm lemonade. <laughs> absolutely, I, I agree. I think it has that same effect on me. In fact, much of Percy Granger's transcriptions of folk songs have that effect. I think he like like the um, English light composers is somewhat underrated. I, he was a he was a very interesting person to say the least, um, but also <laughs> yeah, fant- yeah. fantastic composer. And a, an amazing pianist. He had a very busy career as a concert pianist for for a while, um, and it, it's a charming piece of music. I totally understand why you connect to it. And I love I love the repetition at the end. I mean, I love all of it. I love the the mm-hmm. intricacies of um, uh, of the orchestration, which strikes me that he was a master orchestrator as well, mm. and probably yeah, a really was, yeah. really good arranger. Um, and actually, when it's stripped right back to a chamber ensemble, which I think is what I heard at the proms, and I think it might have been the Northern mm. Symphonia, um, you just hear all of that detail brought to the fore, and it's uh, it's enveloping. It's it is listening to that stripped back uh, version. It feels as though you're you're right in the thick of it. It is the conclusion. It is the coda, the constant repetition of the same mm. rhythm, the same theme, right at the end. That just that, that takes you to the rousing conclusion that oh my goodness me it really really makes my, my heart beat faster um oh, I, I'm pleased to hear that. I only that. came to that I only came to that because of um because of us sitting down to talk about this I thought I need I need to have another choice I know I'll go for that one uh so you know you've helped in a very real sense Good. Fran you've Good. helped I'm pleased um what are you I mean I don't want to de- uh delve into your oh no there's one other thing I needed to ask you what are dropped slurs um, 
Oh, it's too complicated to explain. No, it's not. Here, We've got the time. <laughs> <laughs> We've got loads of time. <laughs> Give it a go. Give it a go, please. Okay, drop slur. It's a two-note phrase with a slur on it, and the second note should be slightly detached. So you get a D, D, D sound. Wow. Okay, right. I think I can visualise that. I think I've seen it in some music now. And so you I... would know them from as a as a clarinetist. You would have come across them, and if you see one, you'd know how to play it. They how make me to think articulate of, it. They make me think of scones. Because Sorry? they make me think of scones. They make me think of scones. Um, <laughs> I don't know why. I think it's dropped dropped slurs. Drop make, scones. Drop, drop that's scones. Why that's why. Drop yeah. Scones. Yes. Uh, yeah. Okay. That's that's uh, that was edifying. Um, uh, is there anything else that you'd like to tell me that I haven't asked you, Fran Wilson? No, nothing. I just want to say that I've very much enjoyed this. It's been very um, comforting. Uh, I I feel that it's very important, more than ever at the moment, to stay in touch with friends and colleagues, um, like-minded people, kindred spirits, and to just c- keep connecting through our networks and like this, so that people don't feel that they're trying to get through this on their own. You know, this awful self-isolating. It, you don't have to be completely isolated when you're self-isolating. No. There's a whole lovely network. And actually, I have to say, Twitter's been pretty good at being entertaining and supportive over the last 24 hours. Yes, um, I'd so agree I spend a lot of time over there, as you know. Um, and this has helped a hu- hugely, actually. I feel much better for having talked to you. Oh, well, well oh, I'm, I'm flattered and, and ditto, ditto. Um, I've, I've, spent, I've spent the past 24 hours working from home for uh, another client. Uh, mm. That sounds quite fishy, uh, but there's no need to name the client. And, and their entire organisation has, has moved to remote working. The last time I did mm. remote working with video conference calls was about 10 years ago at the BBC. The technology mm. has come on leaps and bounds. Yeah. And, and I, what I've noticed, I've found really fascinating, is that the style of conversation that I'm having on video conferencing from home with colleagues is far, far different from anything I'm having in the office when I'm in a meeting room with them. And and it's far more engaged. It's far more direct, clean language. Isn't no, that interesting? No unhelpful yeah. body language, no distractions, yeah. uh, and actually people are responding to the voice more. And and actually, if you give out enthusiasm and hope and sort of a, a sense of pleading, perhaps, yeah. um, actually you will basically get that back in spades. And that's more that's more apparent via video conferencing than I've ever experienced it in an office. And that's just after 24 hours. So I wonder... That's really interesting. I wonder... I, I think that this signals, like we, I was saying earlier about people teaching remotely, this does signal a, a change in how people will work after we are through this, that, that people will perhaps reappraise the need to be in the office and this idea of presenteeism and putting in FaceTime. If they realise that, that devices like video conferencing actually enables better communication and more productive working. Yeah. That's my two pennyworth to end this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> um okay, I have a picture of you looking out over to the sea uh and I'm going to I'm going to leave this conversation with that image in my head. So don't don't correct me if I'm wrong. Um uh thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks. You're great. Um like likewise John, it's been a pleasure. And you know if you ever want to just have a chat. You know where I am. Thank you. <laughs>
You've been listening to the Thoroughly Good Emergency Classical Music Podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider supporting its production for as little as $2 a month via Patreon. Just visit patreon.com forward slash thoroughly good. Your support is very much appreciated. It will help pay the bills. 